Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thank you to you, our listeners, for supporting Positively Trek and to especially our patrons on Patreon. If you would like to contribute to Positively Trek and be a patron on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash positively track you'll get perks like early access to episodes and bonus content and for those who are in the higher levels you get shout outs and associate producer credits and much more and speaking of shout outs let's give a shout out to carl morris joyce Marin, jim stoffel dave garcia rick young paul d Kinnear, and john blaber thank you all for your support now let's go back to the show and what about your goals there's so many possibilities when you're joined. I'm not sure what I'd do yet. I figured I'd get a lot of guidance from the symbiont. Wouldn't you say? Well, the symbiont's influence is very strong, Arjun. But you're the host. You've got to be strong enough to balance that influence with your own instincts. If you can't, the symbiont will overwhelm your personality. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Positively Trek Book Club, where we talk about Star Trek novels. And this week, we've got a new Star Trek novel to talk about, and we'll get to that in a minute. First of all, let me, of course, introduce my co-host, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going today? It's going well. I'm holding the book in my hands, and I apologize that I have a bookmarker in here that says John Jackson Miller, because John did not write this novel. (laughs) No, no, John did not write this novel because not only do we have a new Star Trek novel to talk about, we have a new Star Trek writer to talk about. Uh, A very experienced writer. They've written many other books, but this is their first foray into Star Trek. So we are so excited to have Alex White on the show. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm super excited to be here. I, I love talking about Trek, and I particularly like talking about the book I wrote, so it's always lovely. Yeah, first of all, I just have to start by saying, like, having just read this novel, your love of Trek really comes through. Like, there are some great deep references here that, oh. like, the uber Trek fan in me is like, oh, oh, yeah, there we go. They got that. That's awesome. So is this a spoiler show or a non-spoiler show? It's a spoiler show. It's a spoiler show. <laughs> yes. It is. Okay, yeah, awesome. Absolutely. I, I like the spoiler shows better because then we can, like, really dive in. Sorry if you haven't read it, but so so now that you said that, uh, are there any, are, is there like a reference for you that was just like, oh, that's the one. Oh man. I, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of, uh, there were a couple that just jumped out at me, but a, a lot of like the just little intricacies of Trill that like, you know, there was like a, you know, one line somewhere. One, one actually that I really was impressed with was Jedzia's reticence to engage with Duran, which I, you know, and there's other reasons for this, but Ezri in the episode Field of Fire talks about how Jadzia always really pushed Duran away and, and didn't engage with him because she didn't know how to deal with him. And and that like just 
that one line really kind of echoed through this book. So that was one that impressed me. Thank you for the Field of Fire references. There's so few people watched that one or like remember Field of Fire. <laughs> All of my beta readers were like, well, I thought a Jantara would be required. Like, the, I thought the Rite of Emergence was like, you know, like a one scene thing. And I'm like, it's a whole episode thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that was that was the one time I got to pull that on like, on like the editor. She knows more than me about everything else Trek. But I got to this one time be like, no. <laughs> In Field of Fire. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, so it's obvious from all of this that uh, I'm, I'm assuming you're a Star Trek fan. Like you, you've you come across as someone who's loved Star Trek for quite a while. Yes, though I will say that you know I'm an old Star Trek fan. So like, not to be like I'm not disparaging the new stuff at all. It's just I consumed all the Star Trek of my day, and then I also started watching other things, and then they started making new Star Trek. You know, and so, and, and, but, you know, every time I come back, I'm always like the heart of it's still here. I love Lower Decks, by the way, I'm fully caught up on Lower Decks, you know, so, uh, (laughs) but for me, Star Trek really is kind of Deep Space Nine. And I realize that that to other Trek fans may give me sort of stunted growth, but, you know, that's where I feel comfortable. That's where I feel at home. You know, those are my crew. Now, why Deep Space Nine? What, what? does deep space nine do for you i think deep space nine is when i came mentally of age to care about stuff and i think that's just you know it you know it's 1993 that's why deep space nine <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know it's just i was 12 yeah. <laughs> you know but you were making kind of fun of tos because i remember reading an yes, uh, interview yes. in star trek.com that because I had a similar situation because when I was in university, I would you. watch. That's how they get you. Yeah, I was watching. <laughs> we would watch it to make fun of it, but then I got into it. You yes. know, it sounds yes. like it was the same for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those old scientists are hilarious. And <laughs> I love all of those episodes, even the bad ones. And, and I like looking at them because one of the things I really appreciate about Trek is it's always trying to do best for its day. And so when you go back and you look at something that you know is trying very hard, <laughs> you can sort of take it, even when it's problematic, you can say like, okay, well, that's that's cool. We want to update that now because we know that some of the people involved would care about that and would want that different, you know? And so Trek is always sort of in the spirit of exploration in all these great ways. You, you know, exploration without necessarily colonization is sort of what we hope for right you hope <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm using that in the uh colonialist manner not the space colony manner <laughs> absolutely yeah no i i feel like we're very kindred spirits in that respect because uh a lot of what you're saying about deep space nine and just where it happened to fall in your life like i was born in 1982 so we're pretty close yeah just one just a little younger, just barely. Yeah, exactly. And and Deep Space Nine just, oh man, does it ever speak to me. Like whenever I see like a clip from the show, I'm like immediately like, okay, where's Emissary? I'm going to watch this through well, again. Because... It's got the exact same color palette as the crow, right? We love that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's so 90s. Like it's so mid 90s and everything about it, like everything about Cardassian design to me is like a coked out mid 90s producer fantasy. Like it's, it's, it's so, but I love it. I love it. It's completely of my era. 
I look at it and I, I think of the, the video games of the day. And, and for me, when I was 12, I, you know, I would watch Next Generation and I'm like, man, there's so much. You guys do a lot of talking about problems, but not a lot of <laughs> talking about feelings. Mm, yeah. You know, mm. and in Deep Space Nine, they were like, it's all feelings. You know, that's like the first episode we're going to, you know, Cisco's going to talk to some different god this time. You know, and then just everything after that is about feelings. Like the very first scene sets the stage perfectly. Cisco and Picard meeting for the first time. Have we met? Yeah, once. Wolf 359. Like coldest possible way to meet your ex-boss <laughs> yeah remember when you killed my wife yeah that's when we met uh i'm leaving as a total aside that scene for me like at the time when i watched it i was like what a what a bold way to start a series take this other series that everybody loves and have this guy just hate the lead and you're like right. <laughs> wait <laughs> what are they trying to do here oh i know i know and then immediately immediately somebody checks julian on his privilege it's the very next mm -hmm. scene as he's like i've always wanted to be a frontier doctor and then everybody's like we just fought a war here what is your mm -hmm. problem <laughs> this wilderness <laughs> is my home oh kira yes yeah she just like <laughs> nails into the wall right there and you're just like wow this is a different show <laughs> Mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah that's but that's so deep space nine and and what's weird is when deep space nine sort of misses those beats as well because i mean like it's not it's not perfect all the way through you can sort of see some artifice of network production there mm -hmm. I, I absolutely i like to blame that instead of just like bad decision making you know i'm sure there's some of everything because it's a very long show everybody's got to deal with some problems <laughs> So your love of Deep Space Nine obviously yeah. really comes through here. So now you get the chance to write a novel set in that universe and with those characters. So what was that like to just be able to play with those characters and craft a story around them? Oh my God, it was crazy. So like, okay, so first of all, I've done, I shouldn't say crazy, that's rude. I've done work for Alien before. And one of the things that I was really careful with with Alien and super deliberate on my part, I did not want to use any of the characters from the series because yeah. I was going to kill a bunch of people. And the second you're like, that's Ripley. And it's like, well, I guess she lives. Yeah, well, she's got places to be, people to kill. So, you know, like she's got she got to go. And 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 so I, I hated that. And, and I wanted to be able to play with your expectations uh, really strongly. And the amateur way that I chose to go about this, the easy way, is to just go, well, nobody from the movies is involved. It's a totally different set of things that nobody in the movies would have heard of because everything is classified in this universe. Case closed. No problems. And then, of course, when I when I wrote the sequel, I was like, eh, I'm going to create huge problems for the franchise, but then I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say what happens, but I will say that I tried to make sure that it starts to uh, turn into an expanse-like situation at the end there real quick. Yeah, I, ha I haven't checked out those novels, so I, I'd be interested to uh, to read that for sure. I heard they wanted the universe set on fire, so I went ahead and did them that favor and then was like, I'm out! <laughs> nice. Wow, we should have had you write the Coda trilogy then. Oh, <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> I, would, I could never... 
David and those <laughs> fine gentlemen handled it, just Dayton and them, right? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this joint Dayton affair, and right? David and James. Yeah. All okay. Yeah. yeah. I, that, that sounds like such a master planned thing. That was one of the things that people asked is they were like, are you going to, is this, is this related to the after the series thing? And I got to be honest, it didn't even occur to me to write after the series because I said I could do any Dax I wanted, but like the thought of writing after the series, I don't know, like I really wanted to work inside the show. And furthermore, you know, because I had never worked with branded characters, so to speak, I really wanted that challenge. It's scary because, uh, and you'll hear me say this in other interviews, what did Jedzia just have like a weekend adventure that changed her life, but she never spoke about it again? <laughs> like we know where she's going to end up emotionally, physically, if it was truly a noteworthy moment in her life. And I aim to create noteworthy moments. It needs to be part of her makeup, but the show's done. Yeah, but she did talk about it. It's just off screen. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. Was, yeah, and 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 the the thing is, what so so immediately? By the way, that challenge necessitates the shape of the villain because I wanted to make sure that I recontextualize everything she'd said without crossing it. So if you go back and you look at everything she says afterwards, it sort of fits. But now that yeah. you know the whole story, maybe it hits a little harder. One thing that I thought of, because, yeah, you've you've got Jadzia Dax here, and she's at a very specific point right at the beginning of season four. So she's gone through equilibrium in season three and, and learning about Duran. And one thing that kind of struck me is we have rejoined coming up fairly shortly after this. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, I was like, well, this is just one more thing. Well, she's like, ah, screw all of Trill Society. Like, whatever, I'm out. <laughs> right? you know? And I'm like, that kind of works. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, she really hates the Symbiosis Commission. And so just adding to that wasn't very difficult. And in fact... They don't give you enough of the reasons other than an equilibrium. She's like, I hate the symbiosis commission. And then they try to kill her. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's true. Yeah. You know, and it's like, well, I need these guys to be like uniformly bad. And furthermore, I mean, with Dr. Renhall, it was interesting because I really felt like Lisa Baines had played that character very sympathetically, even though that character is the villain. She could have nurse ratcheted, right? She could have tried and been a little colder, a little bit more, you know, because she certainly had the features for it, Rester, but she didn't. And so I did want to portray a very complicated symbiosis commission that you could still hate. Yeah, I, I definitely appreciated that. And I, I liked that Dr. Renhol is in this as well and kind of is more of the friendlier face in the commission. Whereas, like you said, she was ostensibly the villain in that Deep Space Nine episode. She's but, the yeah, only like face said, that's telling them lies. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because I guess they couldn't afford any more people that day. I, I, <laughs> just, I was just going to well, say, yeah, you can cast a lot more characters in a novel. Yeah, so. <laughs> Dr. Renhall real carries, she just carries water for the rest of the commission that day. It's, it's, <laughs> it's really quite amazing. And and I felt like that hadn't been addressed either. You know, there are so many things uh, in the Jedzia Dax storylines that weren't addressed. You know, who did Duran kill? Why did he kill them? 
they were like because he's crazy and mm -hmm. you know and in fact this is one of the responses to alien uh the cold forge sort of inspired me to pick this torch up here everybody's like oh you've portrayed such a compelling psychopath in dorian who's who's you know the main character or one of the two main characters of the cold forge i should say the antagonistic main character the anti-hero here and they always go on at length about how he's 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 mentally ill and that's why he does what he does and i don't really like that uh that's not why i wrote that character even and i very explicitly don't call him a psychopath he is a subscriber of a very sick society and he's great at it he is optimized for company profit that's what he is mm. and he's a monster because of it you know he's a monster because of the things he has to do on a day-to-day -day basis and so when i was watching the show you know i had been giving because I, I you know of course i did research for this i didn't want to you know go on cold <laughs> the memory it ain't that great right so i went and i watched all the best jadzia episodes because you know when they ask you for this out of the blue you sort of respond you have to you have to respond in a couple of months you know it, they don't give you much time really a couple of weeks and and so i went and i watched all the episodes and i had just been complaining about how i didn't want to contribute to the ableism and here i see this Duran storyline and it's like he's like a hannibal lecter sort of mm. You know, he, they try to do this very psychosexual kind of thing with he's very flirty with Ezri, you know, sort of handsy, like he's like tangoing with her in the phaser. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, feel what the killer feels, Ezri. You know? <laughs> and the masks. And oh, yeah. right. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> the masks. Exactly. And and so they are taking something that is a danger to mentally ill people you know and they're they're sort of perpetuating that some more and and i don't i don't think that that's a good idea people don't do things they don't do evil things because they're mentally ill and in fact statistically speaking they're more likely to have the evil done to them you know and so which is the case in this right <laughs> right yeah so i really was like why did Duran kill those people because i feel like the series did not give me an acceptable answer and it's the same with you know how is she okay with curzon's explanation from facets i find right. it yeah way underwhelming he's like i'm sorry i sexually harassed you you were just very hot and then she's like oh i know <laughs> <laughs> and i felt like i felt you know I don't want to throw anything at anybody's feet. I don't know how the scene was made. I don't, you know, but I know that it left me wanting as somebody who knows people who have been through similar situations and feels that they haven't been done enough justice. And and so, yeah, you know, you see these things and I don't want to be like, yeah, you know, I feel bad coming on these shows and being like, yeah, the, the, the novel come, comes from all these places where I didn't like Deep Space Nine. <laughs> but like, that's not true. It's that I do like Deep Space Nine and I want to like fix these parts that I feel like maybe got smoothed over to make way for main plot points. You know, like I didn't have mm -hmm. to introduce the idea of symbiosis. That's well established, you know, so I have some luxuries to go back and say, well, this thing, I felt like a first draft in an apology, Curzon. You know, this was a first draft of the Duran storyline. 
But no, it's it's good that you do that too because I mean I just always assume that Duran oh Duran was a killer like it's so just so plain like for whatever reason he's killing people but I appreciate that because when I get in the story it's like oh it doesn't quite just happen that easy he's just not like a murderer he's put in a situation that propels him to do these things and it's in some ways it's his fault but it's not his fault at the same time so it really takes that and gives us a complexity around that character and all of a sudden this character that's just oh he was a murderer really becomes something so you gave him breath to really become three-dimensional thank you like i said he is absolutely a reaction to alfred hitchcock's psycho which is sort of the prototype scene right and what happens what happens at the climax of the movie norman bates comes running out with a dress and a knife and that's why he's a psycho Right. So you see all these kinds of things where you're like, wow, the mental health community and the Hollywood community overlap in this really uncomfortable way. And, you know, maybe we want to pick that back up and respond to that. I mean, you know, Mm. watching the Gen Zia punch list, you find plenty of these things. Don't even get me started on that Meridian episode. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I see another book coming. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Why did I fall in love with that guy by Judd Zeodax? <laughs> yeah. Your spots go all the way down. I can't believe you thought that would work. I'm glad you only last two days. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I got to say, like, another kind of side note, like as a kid watching Meridian and as an adult, you know, watching that totally and the rest different. of the series and stuff. Yeah. And also, like... No chemistry whatsoever between those two at all. And then like as a kid and just getting my eyes open to the wider world and getting introduced to ideas and concepts that I didn't get in, you know, small town Alberta, you get to rejoined in season four and the chemistry between Terry Farrell and Susanna Thompson. Oh my gosh. Wow. Right. Right. Night and day. I, you know, <laughs> and, and like, I, I wish that I could ha- have written for Judzia specifically, you know, on the show. And it, it was so, to ask, what it, what was it like? It was, it was taking my favorite character and being like, I'm going to hit every loose end. You, <laughs> like, yeah, this is my favorite character. This is what I think she deserves. I'm going to give it to her. So that's where the book comes from is because I love Jadzia so much. Like I, I find her attitude addictive. Like when I was young, like what I liked about her was that she understood multiple ways of being and that that wasn't a conflict. And it wasn't like the pretender where it's like, I put on the, I don't know if you remember, there was a show on at the same time where a guy would like put on a costume and he would become that thing. And it was a superpower and they didn't play it as a superpower. They played it as wisdom. She's so relentlessly good. And even when she's doing like a Klingon blood oath, she's like trying to be good about it. But she still goes and murders a guy sort of extrajudicially. But, you know, (laughs) what is war if not full of reasons to go revenge yourself? That's okay. When she got back to the station, Cisco gave her a really stern look. So. I know, I know. That was something else that I was like, oh, dang, he would bury a body for you, apparently. Because <laughs> he straight up does. He knows what happened. Mm-hmm. He's just like, I'm very disappointed in you, old man, but I guess I will 
not tell anybody you murdered a guy extrajudicially. <laughs> we'll all forget about it next week. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> but that does tell you that that, but that guy, I mean, he'd set your whole planet on fire if he didn't like it. You know, like that guy, he's, he's, he's got a mean streak in him a mile wide. If you're on the wrong side. And that's the thing. Like Picard doesn't know what he's looking at in that first episode. He has no idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I was on the saratoga that's all he really understands that's the best he has like if he went back and he read this guy's record he'd be like oh i i'm so glad i got to do wine for a couple more years i almost didn't live to my next series <laughs> <laughs> exactly well one thing that kind of jumps out at me from what you've been saying about these stories and and the threads that you're picking up here is deep space nine is complicated in a way that oh, yes. TNG isn't. You said that. I'm not going to say that on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny that like the the parts that you've taken to kind of uh, expand on are the uncomplicated parts where they gave us just like a really flimsy kind of excuse and you've you've complicated them up to like the levels that Deep Space 9 should be at, you know. Right. I, Thank I, you. I love that. It was really important to me because I think that Deep Space Nine like hits some real home runs. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Worf's conflicting loyalties in Way of the Warrior is so good. The episode where Cisco's like, it's for national security. I need everybody's blood. And his dad's like, well, it's for civil rights and you're not getting it. And then like that. And it's like, when did that episode air? And it's like 1999. That's two years prior to the Patriot Act. Mm -hmm. like you warned us deep space nine <laughs> yeah past tense like the sanctuary oh. districts and oh! so much <laughs> so i'm just curi right. curious alex when we were watching deep space nine and you being a writer now d have you ever written other deep space nine stories for yourself no no when i was a this was my first so my very first work though as a writer was was like poetry ripping off shell silverstein and then in the second grade i wrote my first fiction which was a novelization of the arcade game double dragon oh, nice wow. <laughs> i don't know what that is okay <laughs> it's it's a beat-em-up it's a side-scrolling beat-em-up from like i don't know 86 87 okay. probably yep. it was the very first beat-em-up i can recall ever playing and I was just absolutely obsessed with it as a kid. It was at my local skating rink. And I decided that that was enough of a storyline that I could sort of narrate what happened all the way through. And so I wrote like an 11 or 12 page novel and gave it to my second grade teacher. And so, yeah, I've been writing tie-ins for a bit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Well, yeah. So like you said, this is, this is your first experience writing for Star Trek and writing Deep Space Nine. And you've got a really interesting plot here and it, it's kind of, there's, there's some horror qualities to it and some really interesting stuff. I never really thought of when it came, comes to trills and, and symbionts and stuff, but we've got this old friend Nemi that Dax is tracking down and she makes this discovery that she seems to just be a puppet being controlled by by the symbiont and the the actual host is dead i was wondering where did that idea come from was that something that was kind of in the back of your mind with the trill or yes yes 
So one of the things that I think about tie-ins is that a great tie-in is like a great pop song. Jonathan Colton says that a pop song is both familiar and totally new. And I think that that is a fantastic summary of that. And a tie-in needs to be both familiar and totally new. And so one of the things that I did, because the thing about a tie-in to remember is you get half the time and half the money, just as a rule. Okay, you're there for exposure. And what I want to do is as a writer, I want to prove to you that I should be able to write for your TV show or that you would want to read my other books that I get paid royalties on, for example. You know, because like some books I get royalties, some I don't, but tie-ins that's that that decreases, you know, with your proximity to Disney. You know, <laughs> they don't want to sign any more of those perpetual contracts that get them into so much hot water. You know, mm-hmm. they don't like that. And, and, and that, that is that is vanishing in the industry as well. You know, and so you're there to to create an impression. But at the same time, you you all want to read a Star Trek book. And I really want to give you the Star Trek experience. That's also the Alex White experience. and one can't squish the other or I've failed. And so there are all these things in my past that I can sort of turn to and reach into and say like, oh, I've done horror, I've done ghost stories, I've done, you know, I've done glossy space action and lots of explosions and lots of romance, you know, well, that's great. And so you sort of pull out those things and you say like, what elements will really stick with people? And so for me, uh, when I look at Dax, Gen Zia, I think about a character who's profoundly wronged, has so many different things to tie up. And so I'm like, okay, you're taken care of. If I start handling these things at all, this is going to be a whole book. So what am I really here for? What I really wanted to do was I really wanted to create a villain that you couldn't ignore. (laughs) And I wanted somebody that you would like, that you would hate that you would sort of like again, (laughs) you know, that you wouldn't necessarily want to die and then create a concept that would endure and be allowed into canon. And so, because I felt like if I hadn't added to canon, right, why am I there? I mean, come on, like, it's fun to be on the enterprise, but I need it to come up against my favorite anomaly that I came up with, you know? or the character who looks and acts just like me on the bridge. I want to be that person. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I, you know, it is tremendously self-empowering, by the way, to write characters that are like yourself in fantastical situations. And I think everybody should do that, mm-hmm. by the way. The, the, uh, the phenomenon that I'm just referencing, anyway, that's a different point. Are you in this book? Is that what you're saying? I am not. I am not. But uh, yeah, maybe as like one of the you know loser bureaucrats or something (laughs) i'm one of the people like serving lunch (laughs) i don't do i don't like to do physical adventure my friends that involves going outside (laughs) no i'm just kidding i I like to go outside very limited so the horror aspects you know that was a way for me to stretch trekness a little bit and and say like okay we're going to operate at the very edge of what is trek because when i think of trek horror is not one of my top words i mean it has horrific moments they'll put a thing in your ear and it's hard you know like when the bug goes in that guy's you know <laughs> that's not right. cool mm-hmm. not cool that scarred me as a child my parents never should have taken me to that movie <laughs> 
I almost didn't like Star Trek because of it, but that's it's in there. So I, I feel like it's fair game. And then at the same time, I think that oftentimes Trek classically has skewed towards STEM applications. How are we going to handle the time anomaly? We're going to logic our way past Q, you know, that kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, I feel like we can stretch it a little bit by dealing with something that is painfully personal and making it as closely psychological as we can. Yeah, because this is very personal for her. And you're right. I mean, you don't really even have tech, techno babble going on in this. Yeah. Mm, correct. Because I would have botched all that in a heartbeat. <laughs> and also, you know, props to the editor. Uh, I did have some, but she uh, saved y'all. So is that Margaret we're good. Clark that did that for you? Uh, that's 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 one of uh, one of two. Okay. Yes. Ed, Ed Schlesinger also did a pass. Yep. Though I will point out now that uh, I, I now have in canon evidence that you can jettison a warp core in a room detonated and it won't kill everybody. It's hmm. in lower decks. That's true. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> that's how they get past the duplers. So it's in canon now. Well, you have your own duplers in this book. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's what happened. As it was just so embarrassing for Vest that it got angry and duped. <laughs> I just love how you explore that there's these these trill that, you know, they want to be hosts and they can't be hosts. And they're so, so distraught that they're willing to do whatever they can, right? Yeah, look at Varad. He's like, I sat, I came here during a s storm, sabotaged the entire station to kidnap this person because I knew that they happened to be here. You know, like it's, it's, it's wild. The amount of research that he put into it. And, and I was like, man, what drives somebody to go this far? And then you hear about all the abuses that she suffered and it's clearly quite sacred to these people. And that was something that I was a little, I was a little sad about that. I, I kind of wanted to get into some of the more religious aspects of the trail because I was like, there's no way they feel uniformly about this. You know, that sort of feels naive to me. But that was one of the things that we sort of did get the, like, maybe don't, maybe the series is going to develop in that direction and you need to steer clear of it, kind of. Because uh, you don't want to, you know, the last thing I want to do is, like, cross the series where I was like, oh, they have this monotheistic blah, blah, blah. And then the series is, like, immediately, like, about something completely the opposite. You know, since Discovery was, at the time, sort of actively saying, like, yeah, you can do Trill, but be cool about it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and and I got to add so much that it's hard to say, like, I didn't get to do everything. But I will say that's one of the areas in which, I, you know, I have to wonder, you know, they surely feel theologically about it. They're transporting their souls around. And if you don't think that those are souls, I ask you, how is Curzon supposed to remain in Odo for the rest of his life? Mm -hmm. uh, they have a magic priest come, do a magic ritual, and move a soul from one body to another. I don't know how the science of it works. Trek doesn't know it yet either. And Trek will assume it can explain the science. But it didn't. Yeah, I have to say, like, I, I love the world building that you did in this. Like, you were limited, like you said, in, in kind of what you could do. But what you did do, I, I really enjoyed, like, the uh, the idea of a place where joined Trill could go to experience the death of one of their hosts. And that the Symbiosis Commission is kind of okay with it, I guess, but, like, not really. 
I kind of like that, that kind of blurring the lines between the idea that like, we're all on this path, but no, there's, there's some variance there. There's some nuance that you were able to explore. I'm trying to drop different facts in this podcast so that you get a different set of interviews. So I will tell you, this is the first time sort of on air saying that this, this is, that was kind of a strange days reference. Hmm. I loved strange days as a kid when the scene happened where it was like the lawyer who, you know, they were like trying to advertise. I, I don't know if you remember the concept of strange days. It's a James Cameron film, I think, where you could like wear a head thing, like a little head web and you could play back the memories of other people. And then they wrapped it around a murder mystery. I want to say it had Ray Fiennes. I know I had Juliette Lewis and Tom Sizemore. Hard to say. But they wrapped a murder mystery up in it. But there's a part where a lawyer sort of in the pursuit of more prurient interests is he's watching a lesbian sex scene as a memory. And he takes off the headset and he's clearly been affected. Something has awoken in him and it's not sexual. (laughs) And as a kid, that scene struck me hard. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was like he's not there for the sex. He was there to change gender. I would do that. (laughs) And it's like, what does that say about me? Now this science fiction has forced me to confront myself. (laughs) Which is the beauty of science fiction. (laughs) I know, I know. That's what I love about it. That movie may be terrible and problematic, listeners. I don't remember. I've never seen it. I've never seen it, but it's going on the list. Um, We're going to watch this now. I recall it influencing me quite hard. Um, But the concept of being someone else and having that map onto you is an interesting way to interrogate queerness when you're not really allowed to do it by your environment. You know, and I'm not talking about my parents. They've always been nice, supportive people, but your parents are only two people. Right. You know, they don't go to school with you. And if they did, the bullying would be worse. But when you have stories like Jadzia and Ezri, you know, where you're like, oh, what if I knew what it was like to be a woman? What would that be like for me? I don't know. I've never thought of, I mean, I have thought about it, but I haven't told anybody else that, but somebody else obviously thought about it, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and, And so all of a sudden it sort of, it normalizes a conversation and tyrants that are smart burn sci-fi books too, Mm -hmm. right? They should start with them if they're really smart. Yeah. I absolutely because the the ideas there I love science fiction because it's so it sneaks up on you like you don't oh, realize yes. what it's about until you get to the end and you're like oh that's what that was about wow. I know <laughs> I know yeah when somebody's like what's revenant about him it's like uh it's sort of a noir star trek story about you know and I sort of give them the plot what's revenant about It's about how if you want something more than anything and someone knows that they have all of your levers and you need to recognize it before it destroys you. That's it. That's the message of this book. It is that easy. (laughs) But that means a lot of different things to a lot of different characters. You know, to Janzia, that did mean symbiosis. To Duran, it meant composition, right? He wanted to touch the heavens. He didn't want to be joined. 
he, you know, because it's clear he actually explicitly doesn't want to be joined. He's like, I will be the dominant host, which my favorite line uh, that Vess says probably in the whole book. She has two lines that I think are just amazing and I'm really proud of. I don't know who this woman is when when she's talking out of me, but it was when she says, I know the exact study you're talking about. Men tell me about it at dinner parties. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I totally picked up on that one. <laughs> I was like, I have a few axes to grind with a couple of gentlemen I've partied with. Who <laughs> <laughs> yeah. have ruined evenings for me and my friends. <laughs> yeah, that was that was terrific. Even even just on the surface level of cherry picking science that we see going on like just even on that level but then the the mansplaining portion of it too was was beautiful <laughs> it's nice to take a shot at the anti-vax crowd as well you know like there's there's some you know because duran you know duran is so frou-frou <laughs> he, he would be all about some some naturopathic stuff if doc didn't have to wave a light over it you know i i think that duran is 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 an interesting character at least because of because of his interactions with Bess. he's always losing because he wants to compose more than anything and she recognizes that right she's like ah you need a legacy is that what you need and she convinces him to die mm -hmm. you know and jedzia has been convinced to accept all kinds of unfair things even at the end Worf is like yeah I, I wanted my brother to survive and so I gave up my family name <laughs> just like geez you know it's everybody in these in these situations where you know because um who's the guy who Duras right like that guy doesn't deserve honor look at him everything about him sucks <laughs> i mean he's like the worst klingon and it's obvious and anybody who like you could look at him and Worf and just like be like you two answer a question which one's the more klingon of you and duras would fail every single time but of course we lose that um because he you know because Worf has to give it up because Worf cares about the empire mm -hmm. and they use that to destroy him <laughs> And what's great, by the way, is my editors actually brought that one up and I really appreciated it. Not not thematically. You know, they were like, no one, you know, the, the scene with Worf is really sort of lacking because he's just talking about what happened in the book. But, you know, you're missing this great opportunity to, for him to show some some heart and say something that there was no canonical explanation for how uh, Esri knows. Oh, that's I never thought of that. That's a great link there. Yeah. Yeah. And Ed Ed and Ed and Margaret were like, you can close this loophole. Well, you know, and that was when I was like, it's thematically appropriate, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, this is this is what what can happen when you have really good sort of uh teamwork like that. But you know, but yeah, I mean Duran Jedzia as well. Nemi obviously literally destroyed by her ambition. And and Vess by wanting to be fully independent forever you know and and being willing to shut out another sentient living being that that in the end sort of destroys it as well why did mm -hmm. vest choose nemi the dominant vest choose nemi you know i'm gonna guess that it was something about statistics and physiology at the time you know like i need a new body for my dominant self so this one seems like a good one you know like i i feel like i feel like nemi is a good choice because 
she's well connected politically. And if Vested had a little more time to sort of work that out and, and handle those connections, I think that she could have had Edom eating out of her palm by old age and absorbing his connections very quickly. It's just, we needed to play a little distance game to get him in the right spot. And then he got wise. He was never mm -hmm. supposed to get wise. So, and Jedzia showing up did, did confuse things. Well, I wanted to talk uh, a little bit about uh, Worf and Bashir kind of coming in at the end as well. Because uh, actually, let's let's put that aside because I, I'm not giving Kira her due, yeah. actually, because mm. Kira has a, a strong part in the first half of the novel working with Dax. And I love that pairing and the kind of, you know, we, we saw shades of that friendship on the show, but like the fact that it's spelled out here that these two mm. would probably do anything for the other. And I love that really strong friendship. What was that like kind of playing with that dynamic? Well, I think we're all really hungry for that right now. I mean, you know, there's only so long that the world can live inside of the grim, dark game of Thrones need. And I think there's a lot of, you know, reactions to that hope punk, you know, kind of stuff where, and, and I'm not, I, I don't know that I'm in, I don't know. I don't know what hope punk is really about uh, as a as a reader because I'm not into that. But I will say that a strong and loving friendship and a compassionate set of characters is important. And especially with Jadzia, it's like she's so much these things already. And I wanted to accent that. I wanted to show how those are strong, powerful qualities that. You know, when people talk about a strong female character that they don't mean in combat, that they mean holds a book on her own and embodies her own set of values. And some of that can come from relying on the strength of your friends and building communities, you know, and, and it's, it's okay to have those things as part of your character too, James Cameron. Oh, I probably shouldn't <laughs> say that, actually. I want to work with him, maybe. I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I hear he's really scary. He's, is he going to listen to the show? Is he a regular? Oh, yeah. I don't, yeah. yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. Don't worry about <laughs> it. We'll put in a good word for you. Sorry, sorry, Jim. But you, and, and I say this, by the way, that was me bashing on my favorite franchise. So, and I love Ellen Ripley. But at the same time, I think a lot of ripoffs of Ellen Ripley have failed to recognize what makes Ripley strong. And part of that is her incredible leadership and commandability, for example. And not her ability to duct tape several guns together. Well, I liked I liked the I liked the two characters together, Jadzia mm. and Kira. So I was a little sad to see Kira then leave, and then uh, Bashir and Worf came in. You seem sad mm. about that just by me mentioning it. I'm sad because every reviewer has mentioned it. And did you feel that way? You don't feel that way, or? Uh, I mean, you wrote the book. I I didn't <laughs> when I wrote it. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It was just. You did so well with those characters. It sort of, for me, is if, if I if I hear the same thing that often, I'm willing to say that that's sort of a, you know, uh, a mea culpa. You know, I, I guess uh, y'all would have liked it better if she'd stayed the whole book. I wanted to make room for Worf and Bashir to have lots of interaction directly with Jadzia. And I, I, by the way, I'm always using the, the name Jadzia, not because in the book, She's Dax all the way through because you say Dax. But the problem is, I feel like in a show that is out of the context of the book, 
we could be talking about several. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's why I keep saying Jedzia, by the way, instead of just Worf and Bashir Anjan. Yeah. They had different types of relationships and different levels of romantic entanglement previously and coming. You know, and in Julian's case, in Bashir's case, he was really immature about his approach. You know, he's a genius, you know, artificially so even, but he was sort of doing the nice guy thing and then he's kicking rocks for a really long time. And even at the end of the series, he's over there kicking rocks with Quark. You know, and you're like, Quark, what are you kicking rocks for? You really didn't have a shot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, if only I'd captured her with my hollow imager like I'd try to do Kira that one time. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that was weird, by the way, as a modern storyline, because because like back in 96, you know, you don't have all these revenge porn real life stories. Mm -hmm. And then Quark's what probably was a joke to the writers of the day is not funny at all now no or like yeah. you followed you tried to follow kira around with a hollow imager to what uh -uh. <laughs> literally sure. the only good thing about that episode is that it brought jeffrey combs into star trek meridian fails on every other level <laughs> wait was that also meridian that was also meridian that was the b plot to meridian <laughs> i separated those because I thought they were two different bad episodes. <laughs> I'm telling you, your next book, there it is. Somewhere this is, connected. This is to the it. quest to eliminate Meridian. It'll be like it'll be like, it'll be like they have a time anomaly. <laughs> straight back to Meridian to to reject that guy's terrible one liner and be like, I'm going back to the ship. I swear, again, just going back to that, in that episode, I swear Terry Farrell is rolling her eyes at like practically at the camera. Having it. She's so clearly she's trying to hint to the viewer. It's I, I swear to God, she's trying to hint to the viewer, like, don't worry, I don't think these are good lines either. <laughs> like she's not acting in those scenes where she's responding to his advances. I'm using quotes for advances because it's really just annoying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I yeah, she was not there for that episode. And <laughs> I mean, who she's it's like Natalie Portman and all the Anakin Field of Flowers scenes where she's like sort of leaning over the railing like, oh, yeah, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what were you saying something about sand? I don't <laughs> right? whatever. She's like, she's trying to work with it, but it's not Shakespeare. She even said that in an interview. That she got <laughs> <dinged on that. laughs> anyway, um. Right, right. Uh, back to back to the book. But yes, the Kira the Kira Jedzia relationship was so so fun to portray um, because I love that like the the friend friend vibe. I want like fun friends like mm -hmm. you know especially storylines involving Worf have a tendency to be operatic and and for for good mostly. You know that's not the story I wanted to write. I wanted to write about a vacation gone terribly wrong. And, you know, you're still getting all the shopping and restaurants. It's just there's also a murder. <laughs> <laughs> but in the end, Jadzia starts to realize she has maybe some feelings for Worf. So something good comes out of the vacation. Oh, I know. I know. And it was so fun to put it right there as opposed to somewhere where she could just be like, take me and comfort me because it's so much juicier if he can't. Mm -hmm. So much better when she's like, hold me. No. 
But <laughs> <Like>, yeah, <laughs> that's that's why I got rid of Kira. I needed that to happen. <laughs> yeah, that so. makes sense. Yeah, I did enjoy their their interplay, the three of them towards the end, and and Bashir there. I, I, I don't know. I just find something a little amusing about that. You talked about him kicking rocks earlier. You could totally see where he's like in the room with the two of them. He's like, okay, I'm going to go right now. Yeah, um. yeah. When he's like, wait, you fought Worf? <laughs> when did that happen? Yeah. I like to think it was close. <laughs> you know, and he's like, stop smoldering. I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah. I my My favorite scene with her and him the part that i had the most fun writing is actually them at the path of sky institute where she's finally gotten the goods and she knows that you know the kyle talk is being performed there and she goes to talk to him and he tries to defend his love of honey bear oh yes (laughs) (laughs) it's like it's postmodernist, you know (laughs) like uh, no, her character's actually quite deep on a number of levels. Yeah, okay, whatever. I, I read it for the articles. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was great. See, like, just little things like that. like Resting the, Romulan the... face, also from that yes. chapter. <laughs> I love it. Like as a, as someone who loves Star Trek and Deep Space Nine in particular, just those little touches are so much fun. You know, every, every tie-in is on some level a resume, right? And to some extent, I'm sitting here saying like, you know, if I'm writing an alien novel, you better believe I want to write an alien movie. Are you kidding? Call me. <laughs> you know, Trek, same deal. I would just about die to write for Lower Decks, you know? And oh, so... Yeah. One of the things that I'm, my books are sort of known for is I have a lot of good one-liners, not too many good one-liners. That is a careful balance. You know, if your character always says the right thing, womp womp. It's boring. Right. It's expected, right? <laughs> you don't want that. Right, exactly. When you knock a guy in the ice fat, you do say chill out, though. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. But if it's too much, then it's just an Aaron Sorkin character that you know, is always perfect. Uh, you know, I, I used to really complain about the, the one that I always complained about. My friends used to groan at, which it's, it's it feels very gauche to bring it up now is Whedon, you know, because everybody sort of hates mm. on him. But it always drove me crazy that Jane was never uh, traitorous in any way that mattered. You know, he was always charmingly treasonous. Yeah. You know, and like everybody was always charmingly whatever their flaw was. It was never annoying. They were never a racist or whatever. Like a character at some point, no matter how much we love that character, must make a decision that you don't like so that we can prove Mm -hmm. it's not just your id performing its way through the novel. Think about like movies where like, I can't even remember who it was. Some comedian made a movie where it was just him going around taking out hits on people he found annoying right and it was sort of like oh don't you hate it when somebody backs into you well i'm gonna take out a hit on that kind of you know and it was like you know or or actually wanted is a great example of this wanted is just like it's just just male id just like shoved through the plot all the way through is the uh james uh mcavoy movie that was a Mark Millar comic originally about a guy who finds out that he's a super assassin, then sleeps with Halle Berry and kills his dad. The end. 
you know, and then he like inherits <laughs> quite the, the log line. <laughs> <You know>? like, <laughs> it was it's it's that in the comic. It's slightly more complicated in the movie, but you know, but the guy goes around sort of doing all these things that you know. It's like you remember that time you got cheated on? Don't you wish you could have slugged the guy that cheated? On? Yeah, and it's like no, I don't, because I realize that that is a complicated issue that has to do with me just as much as it does with him, and I might have to slug myself or my loved one. Mm. you know i i hate that and i i think that i think that when you have that sort of just the reader is just viscerally satisfied all the time that just wish fulfillment right right it turns into that where you're just like oh it's prurient you know i will say that like there were a couple of times the first season of stranger things i was like i wish he'd just punch that guy and then he would and then i was like oh what happens now (laughs) i didn't think you should actually do it dude we gotta run you know and you like get into it for that reason and that's great you know that's 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 the good wish fulfillment so yeah I, I, I there's a little bit of writerly like at least the way i think about it and i think that if a character a character needs to do something that is is not always nice that maybe disappoints you you know i one of the mm-hmm. things i wanted to make clear is genzia did put too much pressure on nemi everyone did and they, they failed to recognize what was there because it was hard to engage with. Like, honey, you're failing. I would fail you. I should not write you this recommendation. That is so mm. hard to say. And because she didn't, I mean, like, you can't lay that death at your feet, so to speak. As a person who I've experienced some tragedies in my life, and I like to try and blame myself for them, too. But, you know, at the same time, she did some things that are less than pure, less than perfect, because that's all of us. And at some point in the book, that has to come out. Your deepest, darkest secrets don't have to be there, but a fictional character must bear all. I, I love this for, for how deep it gets into those characters. And, and that moment where Nemi confronts, or what's left of Nemi, confronts Jadzia about what she said, which was was basically like, I'm writing you this recommendation so that you don't fail this time or something like that. And like, what a, what a brutal, like you say, set of expectations to put on her. And, and, you know, like you say, not, not directly leading to everything that happened, but was definitely a stepping stone on the and way. And I guarantee like, you that from Jen Zia's perspective, that was a pep talk that was motivated from a sense <laughs> of, I want to make sure you succeed. With a little bit of spice of don't fail in my name. That second part was wrong. <laughs> and so, and and of course, Vess is going to use that. Vess is cold. As a villain, Vess, I, I thought was so, <laughs> so much fun. Like kind of like all the way from like these Cronen, David Cronenberg-esque mutated symbionts and just her kind of vamping and, and <laughs> you, you mentioned Hannibal Lecter earlier and I totally got that vibe when she was behind the force field there oh, yeah. they had her trapped like so many great moments with her she must have been a lot of fun to write definitely well you know so the thing is for one she gets the upper hand emotionally on everybody except Jadzia because she got Jadzia twice already you know, three times, really, you know, once as Curzon, once as Duran, and then once early as, as Nimi has sort of gotten the upper hand on her. And to have Jadzia separate her 
from her host of hosts. <laughs> I guess I don't know what the collective noun of hosts of it would be. I guess I'm going to say it's a host of hosts. That separation had to be a weak point. And I needed to, I wanted to make sure that there's some point in the book where Vess is just like loses its composure finally. And and so those those kinds of moments were really great. Her line to Curzon as as you know, he's like, "You're everything I've ever wanted in a woman," and she's, "You're about sixty percent of what I've ever wanted in a man," because it's just it's so she is so fun to write, and she does do a lot of the things, like, and she does the things that a lot of us wish we could do in those scenes, and then you get to see what she's what she's also capable of. And, you know, I do this not to say that somebody who is self-empowered in a relationship with, an, with a using diplomat is, is secretly evil. That's not what I mean. I, I need you to be on her side sometimes, too. And, with, and, and what's great is I like to start you on her side because I give you the Curzon's a jerk scene first. That was interesting how it kind of like in retrospect, you, you get that like, oh, what was really going on in that scene? Wow. I can't believe, you know. There's one line where she says, uh, he's like, oh, can we start over? And she's like, we've already done that. And you've forgotten. <laughs> and he just assumes, <laughs> of course, that it's some previous time that he's forgotten. <laughs> I love love that how it's kind of uh, it's almost a microcosm for the novel as a whole in that we know how Deep Space Nine ends we and we know how that all ends and your novel kind of slots right there in that season four and we can appreciate the story knowing what happens later with you know there's there's some veiled lines too where um, Vest says to Worf and Bashir Jadzia's death is going to wreck you or something like that and I was like whoa. Says it to Dax. She says Jadzia's death is going to wreck you, and and you know there's another line where it's like Jadzia is like afraid of dying. She's like I'm afraid of losing myself. I want to get old. Yes, mm-hmm. I remember that. And I was just like, <laughs> that's for you, fans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember specifically reading that, and I was so into the book. It was about two sentences later. I was like, <gasps> <laughs> like. Oh yeah, no, she dies. Oh no. It's a book about mourning in a lot of ways. This is why the Mordenacht being in the dead center of it's so important. You know, I don't have two modes. When I do these tie-ins, I mean I take them very, very seriously. And I go for all the subtext and all the meta stuff that your English teacher talks about. Um maybe I do it, maybe I don't. I, I I'm trying. Uh, you know, and I'm not, you know, and I'm I'm always I always want to create a cohesive mm-hmm. experience. And I'm not doing these things to be pretentious. I'm doing these things because they speak to you on a psychological level, on a cultural level, on a mimetic level, and they adjust your expectations so that we can get you into the correct headspace to absorb the moral of the story, you know? And I also think that books without a moral of the story are rarely worth reading. And, and that's just because the drama of it is, I mean, Look, if we're proving what the definition of evil is, then I think the drama of that story is probably going to be pretty high, you know. And so stories without an ethos don't they just don't do much. Well, I, I want to say this and I'm and I'm not saying this to suck up or or anything like that. But I, I was at one point in my career an English teacher and there was a oh, moment crap. and I can't remember exactly where it was in the book. <laughs> 
but there was a moment where I was like, I wish I could do this as a novel study for a high school class, just because there was some example of like it was foreshadowing and dramatic irony and a bunch of other stuff all together. And I was like, oh, this is so great. Like, this is the example I'd put on the board for this. Oh, you got and- A. Oh, that (laughs) makes me so happy. You know, it's funny. I had a creative writing teacher once in college tell me that I would never make it. Mm. Like to my face. But he was, well, I didn't take him seriously. Um, He was, he was mad at me about an assignment that he felt that I hadn't taken seriously. He'd asked me for some poetry in the form of, I guess, a scavenger hunt. It was like, you must involve this item, this item, and this item. And I I turned in sort of a Shel Silverstein-esque poem that had the class in stitches. And and, uh, he was like, you didn't take it seriously. I'm like, I took it very seriously. I I wrote, I created an experience poem. Like I, you know, I didn't, I don't have the, I didn't have the language that I have now for defending artistic integrity. Uh, first of all, I don't think you d- should defend yourself from critique. I think your work should always stand mm-hmm. on its own. And the fact that he, you know, he was mad. I didn't use, a, he, he didn't want me to use meter and rhyme. He didn't want me to, like, he was like, I wanted you to free verse and all this. And then you should have made the assignment free verse. Wow. And that oh, was when please he Please tell me that you sent one of your published books to him. No. <laughs> are you kidding? He, ha- he read my short stories in college. He knows where the bodies are buried. <laughs> not a chance i would love for you to send a book like this and then even in the back where it says other books that, sh- that have been published and just right in the back and you said i'd never make it oh oh well you know what i you know, living well is the best revenge and i hope he never hears of this i hope i hope he goes <laughs> well, he to does listen store. to this podcast he oh, does listen. God, him and jim cameron too <laughs> yep Together, yeah, they listen <laughs> together. Oh, it's their like Wednesday night, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. I mean, um, it it's important that you have those events in your life, and when when those happen to you, you need to be like, thank you, thank you so yes. much. Yes, you have, it challenges you. You have lit a fire in me, and I will prove yes. you wrong. <laughs> It pushes you. That's right. And you know what's funny is what makes me happy is I'm not known as a comedy writer. I'm known as a writer who's funny. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a difference. Yeah. And so when you look, it's like, buddy, I can do the poetry. I can make you cry. I can do the subtext. You just didn't care to see it at the time and you were lashing out at a kid. But, you know, everybody's mm-hmm. got their own problems. That, that guy's probably like, I don't know what his deal was. You know, maybe he was like real sad or something. I don't know. I try not to worry about it too much, but it sticks. It does stick with you in that it's like it's a big motivator. But I don't have to prove it to that guy. I've got ten books under contract. Mm-hmm. I don't have to prove it to anybody, <laughs> you know. But it, it, you know, it's good that it happened. I'm so grateful that it happened. And if if I could say anything to him now, I it's, I hope you feel differently about me. And thanks for saying so. Yes. So nice. this is why I suggest your next. Deep Space Nine book, the sequel to Meridian, is dedicated to, <laughs> to a guy who would have been my Meridian. <laughs> there you go. Yes. It's like, wait, do you mean that he's guiding middle? No. No, I mean that. I mean that in the way that he would have been my Waterloo. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that you'd want to read right. from. Yeah. Absolutely. Just got to get rid of that history. Now, um. But yeah, no, and anybody who wants to write books, um, they need to they need to have some of those experiences. They need to be doubted mm-hmm. um, because 
you need to recognize that you are taking a social risk when you choose to stand up and be a creative and that there are consequences of that risk and and that's okay the risk will make you great when somebody hates on you that's awesome that will make you great find a way to deny them their excuse if you can it makes it even more fun yeah and and also just one last thing for all the budding writers in the audience uh trauma and tragedy they may make you a good writer and everybody sort of loves to say that kind of stuff but what they don't say is not at the time and so if you're currently going through it and you find that it's hard to capture exactly what you're going through maybe wait a while and then write a star trek tie-in or something that's it i love it absolutely well on that note is there anything that we haven't talked about with regards to this novel that you would like to to get out there to say oh my word i've been tremendously validated we got to talk about the kira going going <laughs> home halfway through i really i just couldn't i couldn't i couldn't justify it like i kept thinking that somebody was going to write in and be like four of the senior staff are missing at the beginning of the dominion war over a personal issue <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with that. I, that exactly. I was so afraid I, of I, that that I just I guess I just balked. I don't know. <laughs> no, I think you made the right decision because it gives the chance for these two characters to play off of each other and then bring another set of characters for her for Jadzia to play off of and by having Kira there would be too too many people involved. And and to your point, they would be, it, they shouldn't be away from the station that long. That may senior staff to their point to their point and and i think you should always be able to listen to a uh, critique of yourself that's given in good faith and these were reviewers who loved the book who said this so i really want to be there for them and one of the things that i want to sort of point out is that these are two books and one of the things that i loved about revenant is it was always two books it is super best friend vacation followed by choose a boy okay <laughs> and and I, like I loved writing it that way. It was it was important to me to write it that way. It was something that I felt convicted to do. Now that doesn't resonate with everybody because they're like, some people are like, hey, jump the track. This is two books. This, this feels like a different book now. That's allowed. I hoped to give you the buffet experience of Alex White uh, stuff. You know, I had all of these things and I was like, I only have one book contract. So I'm going to do it my way if i just in case they don't let me do deep space nine again you know which i i have been invited to do it again i need to finish the trilogy i'm writing right now <laughs> but it's i thought that having those two distinct sets of storylines enabled me to address jadzia's many 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 backstory loose ends and i i do regret not having more kira in there we we both we both do fans but I don't know how I would have done it and given you the same experience. And so I sort of recommend that if you feel very strongly about this, that you should ask yourself how you're going to benefit when it's your turn to be in my seat, because I, I totally think you should learn from it. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I can talk about my reviews. That's very fine. Cool. <laughs> Kara's on the cover. So they, she they is. Get more Kira they did. There. They put, they, they really put the expectation that you're going to get a lot of Kira. They were like, it's a Kira Dax book. And I'm like looking at my synopsis, like it's half that. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, and then they're like, here's the cover. I'm like, great. <laughs> but it's such a beautiful cover. Speaking oh, of which, 
Yes, exactly. That cover is gorgeous. Uh, they really knocked it out. Oh of the my park word! Yes, one, Cliff so. Nielsen. Uh, I saw it and I was like, "No changes, love it." That's awesome. Yeah, very beautiful. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm just gonna say right now, like I absolutely love this novel. I hope everyone listening loved it as well. And uh, if you're listening to this and you've listened this far and you haven't read it yet. Uh, as I've said in previous episodes, I question your life choices. I don't know why you would do that. <laughs> but go out and grab it and read it. Uh, even after having us spoil it left and right for you, it is well worth the read. It was a great read. And and just to to feel that, that you know, in the middle of the series, Deep Space Nine world again, uh, translated, oh, yes. represented so wonderfully by your writing. I just, I felt like I was back watching DS9 and that's, just a wonderful Actually, thing. I did forget to say something in this podcast. I do like to bring this up. When I was doing this mentally, creating the book, uh, you know, one of the things I'm known for is ginormous set pieces. Like if you read the salvagers, everything's like a mile wide, you know, like, and, 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 and so there's lots of space battles and glossy action and explosions. And, and my aliens books are sort of the same way where it's like, I want you to get a sense of the scale of the industry and, all that stuff. Star Trek episodes are not like that. They're notable when they're like that, right? Like when we have the Defiant flying against everybody, that costs a lot of money for that 30 seconds, you know, so we don't do much of it. And so one of the things that I was trying to do was write the book in a way that is commensurate with a Deep Space Nine budget, you know, and try and write only sets that they could produce. Mm -hmm. Now, I gave myself one free thing and I was like, unlimited sets. So that's unrealistic, right? So I, I was allowed to change locations a lot, but I wanted to mentally, I was like, no, we're going to make sure that this is sort of only stuff that they could actually do so that it feels like a TV show, you know? And they actually dinged me for this on my initial outline because I didn't know what I was doing yet. You know, I hadn't written in any Star Trek yet. And so they were like, hey, you can't just have Starfleet be, you know, like the space police or whatever, you know, um, they can't just be doing shuttlecraft chases in the middle of town and that kind of stuff. And I, yeah, okay, you know, like message received. And it really caused me to think like, am I missing the Star Trekness in favor of my own personal hubris? And the answer was yes. And so the question was, okay, well, how do you, how do you check your ego? What thought exercise, what standard can you do to check your ego and make sure that you're still on brand? Because you still signed up for a Star Trek experience. I don't want to like pull the rug out from under you and be like, oh, I'm just kidding. It's only my book. You know, like you signed up because you love this. I love this. We're here, we're here to love it together. So let me talk about the aesthetics in a way that will make sense. And I feel like if you go at a Star Trek novel and you're like unlimited money and everything, that's not how the episodes were shot. So by necessity, you're out of step with the story. Mm -hmm. Now, modern Star Trek is different. And... So like, but I wasn't writing for Discovery where you can just walk into a bar and vaporize half the occupants. Like, <laughs> I saw them do that. I was terrified of them. Uh, that's different. That's a different mm -hmm. show. You know, so to capture Deep Space Nine, I had to write like I had a budget. And it was a really strange and fun thought exercise and totally awesome, surprisingly. I was really enjoying the limitation. That's so cool. Yeah, it's yeah. it kind of cool. Yeah, because yeah. that's the feeling I got. Like you were saying, it feels like an episode. And, and to your point, Alex, yeah, it, it feels in that context. 
Oh, thank you. Well, you will find I did not break the bank when I wrote it. Everything's all like close and personal. Even the big confrontations like in a bank vault, basically. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Like yeah. I normally like to have like a fight on the outside of a starship with fists and lasers and there's a space battle behind us. You know, like let's do that. This time I was like take that all out. Yeah. Once I got that yeah. first that first critique from Paramount, it was like okay, got it. We'll change tax entirely. And um I'm happy to say that the studio gave zero notes. And that that's I'm hugely proud of that. I don't expect it to ever happen again. I'm 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 I'm, I'm batting a perfect uh, whatever the I'm sorry I'm not Cisco, uh, but you know <laughs> my Aliens books don't get notes. My Star Trek book didn't get notes. I try to stay on brand. The studios like me for the brand, and and um and part of how I do that is really digging into the aesthetic. You know, Alien has a cinematic aesthetic. Star Trek has a TV aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. and they are different. And if you don't write to the medium, it doesn't feel right. Yeah, I definitely saw more of a square screen than a wide screen for this. One. I was just thank you. you I was just too? gonna say, yeah, like I can pinpoint like one of the moments was when Dax is describing her hotel room. I totally saw like mid to late nineties <laughs> set design four by three aspect ratio. I'm like, yep, there it is. Perfect. That's the one vase that has the little willow in it. Yep. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the little um, wall sconce that's in every set that looks vaguely futuristic. Yeah. This right, is so right. interesting yeah. to me because I don't know what it is. I mean, I, as I, cause sometimes I try to picture when I read Star Trek books, a bigger budget than you would get in TV, but my brain just wasn't going there. I just tried to make it seem like more like a bigger budget, like that room looks so, but it just stayed there. So that worked. No, the most expensive stuff in my novels, like the rain, like that rain <laughs> effect yeah. was going to cost you a fortune. That culvert scene, we would have had to find that. That would have been like that. And so it's so funny because like, it's not the tent pole pieces that you think, it's the guy jumping off a balcony. That's we couldn't do that on the show. No. She couldn't watch him. Mm -hmm. She'd have to like come to the edge of the balcony, and then we cut to him on the ground, like ugh, like stumbling to his feet. You can't you can't show him hit the ground. That's too expensive. Yeah, that's true. And we and, and so there are yeah. some, there are some bookism. Well, I did, I did. did that one. I did. Oh. There are some bookisms <laughs> that are a little bit more expensive. But then, you know, I immediately cut to uh, that same drainage ditch in Los Angeles where they shoot every single body. <laughs> yeah. Where, you know, Inspector Burks is like standing there with the other trail. Yeah. Shoot that in Culver City. I know where to shoot it. So I tried to be very Hollywood about it, you know. But what's funny is if you if you make your story around those kinds of restraints, it messes up the story. And so it's, it's really weird to because it messes up it in a Star Trek way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, anyway, uh you should try it out if you if you do any kind of writing like that, you should really try it out. Try try saying like how would I design this if it was a TV set instead. That's great. Yeah. One other quick random thing that just popped into my head, you were saying about like seeing yourself in in the story and that kind of thing. Yes. I just remembered there's one character, there's the Starfleet engineer or maybe science officer or something that you know, is used to like staying inside and writing reports <laughs> and is freaked out about any kind of combat. I think that's actually me. That might've been. <laughs> <laughs> you should definitely see yourself there. You know, I will say that I, it is always my goal to make you believe that you could exist in my universe somewhere, no matter who you are, <laughs> you know, even if you're a horrible bigot, 
you definitely exist in my universe. I'm See, sad. I thought I was Colin Hart, <laughs> and I, you know, I died. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, with noodles. But noodles was well taken care of. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on the show. I have really enjoyed myself. Oh, great. We got, yeah. we got deep today. <laughs> well, it was so awesome having you on, for sure. And uh, for our listeners out there, what do you have coming up? What should they check out if they want more of the Alex White experience? And, <laughs> sure. you know, maybe anything in Star Trek coming up in the near future. Oh, well, first of all, even if I knew anything, I would never say anything. But you said uh, that answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, no. So currently uh, I have August Kitco and the Mechas from Space, which kicks off in July. It's the first book of the Star Metal Symphony from Orbit Books. So you can find that every bookstore worldwide. And then uh, let's see here. Well, that's a three book series. And I, of course, just released Revenant. And then uh, the same year, um, last year, Into Charybdis also came out, Alien Into Charybdis, which is uh, a hardback. And I think the paperback of that comes out in February. So um, I'm looking forward to getting a box oh, of awesome. those in the mail. That's, the, uh, that's another book in the Aliens uh, franchise that I wrote. If you want to get the entire story, here's, here's a cool thing about Into Charybdis. You can just pick it up and you can just read it. If you want the whole story, you can read The Cold Forge, which is the first Alien book that I wrote for them. And um, that gives you a huge amount of insight into a side character that you can take or leave. You know, I, I sort of like to say like, well, and I hope you saw that with this book as well. If you haven't watched Deep Space Nine recently, that's allowed. I want you to feel welcome here. So I hope you'll also check out my Salvagers trilogy, which is a space fantasy, which starts with a big ship at the edge of the universe. And it has a blend of magic and technology, sort of the space opera version of Final Fantasy VI, right? That's, that's me. You can find me online, Alex White Books on Twitter and alexrwhite.com and the Alex White on Instagram. Excellent. And Bruce, where can people find you? You can find me reading this book again, and you can find <laughs> me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline Rex. And you'll find me occasionally on Literary Treks and the Star Wars Report podcast. Excellent. You can find me on Twitter at Kurtrats. That's just Star Trek backwards. Uh, <laughs> YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions. And of course, the Positively Trek discussion group on Facebook. Uh, follow the podcast on Twitter at Positively Trek. And thank you so much once again, Alex White, for joining us. This was a really fun discussion, and I was really excited to get to talk to you about this novel. I'm so glad we got to dig into everything. I, I felt like I was just taking a victory lap the whole time, so I apologize, <laughs> listeners. But that was a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, hopefully we'll have you on again sometime soon. Uh, fingers crossed for that. So... Uh, until then, everybody out there, thank you so much for listening and stay positive. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.